No one wants to endure chastening. Nevertheless, after we're chastened, it produces, Peter says, rejoicing. And here the writer says, after it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Righteousness and holiness are almost synonymous. And we'll cover that in the latter part of chapter 1 into verse 2. Uh, excuse me, chapter 2 of First uh, Peter. The peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, back to First Peter. First slide, brother. It should be slide 48. I think I might have said 46, but it should be slide 48. <clears throat> Verses 6 and 7. We spend some time looking at faith tested in the, tested in the crucible of trials. So we've looked at Hebrews chapter 12 in this passage. God trains his sons, and we could put daughters, or he trains his people through suffering. Jesus was perfected, not that he needed to be, but the book of Hebrews says he learned through suffering. And if we are Christ-like, we are going to learn through suffering. Suffering in our life is training ground for our souls in faith. Suffering increases our communion with our Savior because our Savior suffered. Look at chapter 4 and verse 19, 1 Peter chapter 4. And verse 19. Therefore, Peter says, let those who suffer according to the will of God. All of our suffering is in accordance with God's will. All of Jesus' suffering was in accordance to God's will. All who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So, verses 6 and 7, we looked at faith tested in the crucible of trials. This morning, in verses 8 and 9, we need to look at the crucible of trials, our suffering, produce love for the Savior. That's what Peter writes. Look at verse 8. Whom, having not seen, you love. Now, we're going to focus on that just for a moment, but I'm going to give you sort of an outline here as we look at verses 8 and 9. C.S. Lewis at the um, latter part of the 1950s, 58-59. C.S. Lewis uh, fell in love and he married a woman. And this woman had cancer and she had it a couple of times and it went into remission and then finally she uh, passed away with cancer. During his engagement and during his marriage to this lady, now he married late in life because he was 63 when he passed away, and that was actually he, was, he died on the same day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated, November the 22nd, 23rd, 1963. But he wrote a couple of great books. The first one is The Four Loves, the second one is the problem of pain. And I would highly recommend both of them to you. The four loves 
And these are the laws. This is, these are the Greek words uh, that are used. Uh, uh, two of them are found in uh, the New Testament. The other two are not. And one of them is storhe, which means affection. The second one is philia, friendship. You can remember that from Philadelphia. The third one is eros, which is romantic love. And the final one is agape, or charitable love, divine love. So when Peter says, whom having not seen you love, we need to define this so that we understand what he's talking about. Next slide. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever fallen in love with someone that you've not seen? We don't see it much now, but many, many years ago, young men, young ladies would write letters back and forth. Sometimes they had never seen each other. There may have been images of the young lady or the young man, but that particularly was only available to wealthy people. So through the writing of letters, young men, young ladies would fall in love with each other. Whom having not seen you love? Today, I know you have because if you have children, you love them before they were born, grandchildren, whatever. And even if you look at the ultrasound of these infants, these babes in the womb, it's not quite the same as when the child is born and you're holding that infant for the first time. So you can identify with this, not necessarily in a spiritual way, but certainly in a physical way. Whom, having not seen, you love. Now, C.S. Lewis went on to write in this particular book. He wrote this. This is our chief aim. The unconditional love of the Father given to us through His Son. Notice, unconditional. Affection, storhe, friendship, philios, and romantic, eros, love, are each the training ground for charity to grow. Divine love. It is also a rival to the three. And so when we define love... Generally, it's one of the, uh, the first three. God who needs nothing. The aseity of God. Loves into existence holy superfluous creatures in order that he may love and, per and per perfect them or perfect them. There are no tenses in God. Okay? No past, present, future. Well, you've heard me talk about that a number of times. He defines love as demonstrated on Calvary. The buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the messial nerves, messial, messial, 
the repeated incipient suffoca uh, suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up, if I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites. That's you and me. God is a host who deliberately cre uh, creates his own parasites, causing us to be that we might exploit and take advantage of him. And herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself. He is the inventor of all loves. Whether it be affection, friendship, romance, charity. Next slide. Long quote, but I wanted to put this up. He completes this by saying, need love. And oh, we need him. We live in an age now when people are overtly needed, needy. Need love cries to God from our poverty. Gift love longs to serve. Now he begins to talk about uh, agapeo, agape, and the word that's used here. Gift love longs to serve or even to suffer for God. Appreciative love says, we give thanks to thee for thy great glory. So Peter says, whom having not seen, you love. Our faith is tested. Our affliction is before us and we are chastised for purposes. And this testing, this suffering, this chastisement works through us to bring about praise, honor, and glory at the rev revelation of Jesus Christ. He finishes verse 7 by saying that. May be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. There are four principles that we're going to look at this morning. And the first one is they have not four principles of Christian belief. They and we, the folks he's writing to and you and I, good old people here at Flat Creek, we've not seen Christ, but we love Christ. Secondly, they and we have not heard Christ, but we believe in Christ. Thirdly, they and we, having not seen or heard Christ, rejoice in Christ. And then finally, through love, through belief, through rejoicing, all three, we receive the salvation of our souls. The end and the climax of our walk on this sinful world. And so it is with God. We love him because he first loved us. Next slide, if you would. We're going to take 
with number one, take a little bit of time this morning because we need to understand the difference, the differences between how humans love and how God loves. So we talked about the four loves. In fact, uh, Lewis goes into some detail in his book about these four. Now the word that's used there is a derivative of agapeo or agape. Uh, aga, agapate, I believe. It is love that is indicative rather than imperative. It, it, it flows from a heart that has been changed. Changed. Obviously, we're commanded to love God, but this is a, a, a love that comes from being exposed to the graces of God that Peter has mentioned in the first few verses. It is a love that is to be commended as what he talks about in verse 7, the genuineness of your faith. Our, Peter is commending the pilgrims for having a genuine faith. He is commending the pilgrims for loving Christ, even though they've not Seen him. Now, love defines the relationship that we have with the triune God, the relationship that we have with the Son of God. And this love is not a passion. It's not eros. Talked about writing the letters many, many years ago. And I'm sure, in fact, you can, uh, you can find books, books written about uh, uh, letters that were written back and forth between young men and young women. But what Peter is talking about here is not passionate love. It's not the falling into love. We are, and we're going to give you a couple of theological terms, won't hurt you this morning, but it'll help you understand our love, God's love. We're passable creatures. In other words, Outside influences act on us to persuade our emotions. All God's people said? All God's people said. Outside influences act on us to persuade our emotions. And yes, they do. We've had potluck dinners here at church. It's time to have some more, by the way. COVID's pretty much moved on. It will be okay. We eat at home. I've seen some of you in restaurants, so I know you're eating. You like potluck dinners. I remember as a boy, uh, I was probably five or six, seven years of age. We, uh, my dad was, was speaking at a church out in the country, out in Bedford County, and we, after that uh, morning service, uh, we went to uh, a family's house for, uh, for dinner, for, for Sunday dinner. What did people typically fix for Sunday dinner many, many years ago? What? What? Fried chicken. Baptist bird. When you went to someone's house many, many years ago, I was, like I say, five, six, or seven, somewhere in that age. Who ate last? The children ate last. And so after the adults, hungry as they were, picked the Baptist bird 
to death, what was generally left? Not much. There were some backs, chicken backs. You might have had a gizzard. You might have had a liver. You might have had some wings, and wings are good. But the breasts, the thighs, the legs were typically gone. Because people are persuaded by outside influences to pick what they like. Happens here all the time. Great food. I remember going to this particular house and there was fried chicken. There was also macaroni and cheese. And the lady that had uh, prepared the dinner asked me if I wanted some macaroni and cheese. And I said, no, ma'am. And she said, why? I said, because you don't make it like my mama makes it. Now, I didn't know that, but I'm persuaded by outside influences through my emotions. So you go down the line and you pick and choose what you like. That is because we are passable creatures. God is not passable. He is not moved by his passion to love us. God is impassable. What motivated God to move, to become incarnate in order to save us? Because he was moved by his passion as he looked at a world that was steeped in sin? He was moved by his passion? No. We're passable. We're easily persuaded due to ex- external influences. And one of the ways we know that is because sin is the great equalizer. Just look at the world. It matters not what types of sin we commit. It is still the great equalizer. Yes, there are sins that are more egregious to us. But all sin to God is egregious. All sin to God is egregious. So only God is impassable or without passion. He is never moved by something or someone that provokes change in him. If he was moved by someone or something that provokes change in him, he could improve, and he can't. He's impossible. God never becomes better, he never takes a course in leadership. He never does any of these things that you and I find normal in this day and age because he is impassable. He is never moved by something or someone that provokes change in him. No creature, and that's what we are. And that includes Satan. No creature exerts force such that he is changed or causes him to move toward our view of good or bad. 
God's love, if you're listening, say amen. God's love is not amoral. If we are amoral, we must be reminded that God is not, and God's love is not. Turn with me to Job. Job 35. A couple of weeks ago, we were, when we started looking at verses 6 and 8, we were in the book of Job. Let's go to Job again. Job chapter 35. We know the story of Job. It's a tremendous book. <clears throat> Job is approached by three friends. And though they sin and sin greatly, some of what they say is true. And here we're going to see this. In chapter 35, and this is Elihu, look at verse 5. Look to the heavens and see, and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. If you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? Does our sin affect change in God? No. God had already moved before heaven and earth was created to save. He is not reactionary. He is not random. So here Elihu asking Job, if you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a man such as you, and your righteousness a son of man. But neither one provokes change in God. Because God has already established through his goodness. As a matter of fact, the love of God flows from his goodness as the mercy and grace and kindness of God. They all flow from his goodness. Next slide, brother. <clears throat> when we understand this, it brings about rejoicing with joy. You've heard me often say, in spite of who we are, God loves. And he does, because he's not persuaded by who we are. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow, especially in America. But that's what the Scripture says. And this means that, and this is a good thing, this means that God's love and mercy, and these are examples God's love and his mercy, we could add grace to that, we, a number of things we could add to that, are not passions. They are perfections. You and I love, and let's be honest, we love some people more than we love others. I love everybody the same. No, you don't. 
I don't. You do not. Only God. Because his love is perfect. You've got an infant. You think, oh, I couldn't love that child anymore. And then they are five, or they're six, or they're 12, or they're 20, or they're in the 40s, or they're in the 60s. And time and experience increases the love, but not with God. I love Robbie if we, if we, uh, God gives us grace to make it to next February, we will be married 50 years. And I certainly love her more today than when we were married. Now, at the time, I didn't think that was possible. No way. Absolutely not. But I was wrong. I was wrong. But God has loved me and he has loved Robbie the very same been no increase in that love. There's been no decrease in that love. It's the amazing thing about God. God has not moved to love of mercy, but rather loves and showers mercy because these are perfected within him and his perfect goodness. God's not moved to love. He is love. Now, love is not God. God is love. Many people make that mistake. In 1 John 4, 8, it tells us that God is love. God's love is not amoral. God love, God's love is always consistent with his word, always demonstrated through his son. And this happens because his love is not passion. He cannot cease anymore to love then cease to be. And Peter knows this because he encountered Jesus after his denial. Did Jesus' love for Peter decrease when he denied him? No. Did it increase in John 21 when he said, feed my sheep? No. Because it's perfect. Christ loved him Still, and if you're here this morning and you're unsaved, one of the great truths of, of Scripture is there is nothing that you can do, say, or be that increases or decreases God's love for you. What an amazing God we serve. Peter wants his people to grasp, wants the readers to grasp that the Trinity Father, Son, Spirit loves his people with an everlasting love precisely because he loves us from who he is. It's not based on any perceived goodness within us. In fact, the scripture says, there's none that does good, no, not one. Psalm 9, quoted again in Romans chapter 3. Next slide. 
So we love because he first loved us. This is in that same chapter. We covered a little bit of this last year, uh, Father's Day and the time following. 1 John 4, 19. We love him, and that's what Peter is saying. You love him even though you've not seen him. We love him because he first loved us, and that love has, has, has not increased nor decreased. It is consistent. Psalm 136, the psalmist wrote this, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. What a great and precious promise. Therefore, we love him, though we haven't seen him. You remember Jesus' reply to Thomas when Thomas said, Unless I see the nail prints in his hand and touch and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And so Jesus appears before him and he tells him, look here, Thomas, touch my hands, touch my side. Be not faithless, but believe. And then Jesus says this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. After the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room and he rebuked them. He loved them, but he rebuked them for their unbelief. And they deserved it. You and I deserve it. God rebukes us. They had not believed the testimony of either the angels, he is not here, he is risen, or the women that went to the tomb and came back and told them. Well, they just went. So he rebuked them. Now God places a premium on faith. We talked about loving, although we've not seen him. Hebrews says, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. We love Jesus through the eyes of faith. And then the Bible says this. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be a curse. Let him be anathema is the word. Let him be accursed. Next slide. So, first thing, and I know that was long, but I wanted to, to take you through what Peter is referencing here. And the love that he's referencing here is that charitable love. It's the love, the divine love that is imparted to us by the Spirit of God. Secondly, they and we have not heard Christ, but we believe in Christ. Now, Peter not only saw him, but he heard him. For three and a half years, he followed with him. Now, we've not heard him through, the, through our sense of hearing. But we've heard him through this. I want to hear Jesus. And Read the Gospels. I'm reading the Gospel of Matthew now. Read the Gospels. Read the Bible. Romans 10, 17. You remember we went, when we went through the book of Romans, uh, chapter 10 has to do with the responsibility of man and the fact that we are responsible to God for our belief or our unbelief. And there Paul would write to them, quoting from the book of Isaiah, faith comes by hearing the word of God. 
Faith is not something that is trumped up within us. It comes as a gift from God through his word. Now, the word hearing there means report. Faith comes by a report from the word of God. That's the reason Jesus chastised his disciples. You've had at least two identifiable sources tell you that I was alive and you didn't believe me. Believe them. The report from these people. The report from the Word of God. Paul would write to the church of Thessalonians. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the Word of God which you heard from us. People in Thessalonians Thessalonica had not seen and not seen or heard Jesus either. But you received it, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which works effectively in you who believe. What's that effect that takes place? We come to faith. We're born again. We believe. We're born again. Our belief takes place when we hear the report from the Bible. And this revelation then is taught to us by the Spirit of God. And that yields trust. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him yet believing. That's what he's talking about. Trust. Yet trusting him. That means to experience him as reliable in all of his promises. And all of his counsel. And our love, when he talks about loving him, having not seen, our love is an attraction to Christ for who he is. Faith, then, is confident because we trust him for what God's going to do. And that's what the latter part of verse 8 into verse 9 speaks to us. Now, next slide, number 3. They and we, having not seen or heard Christ, rejoice in Christ. We close out the book of Romans with this, one of these great verses here, Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Doesn't end with fill you with joy and peace. In believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Is there hope in the gospel? Absolutely. Why? Because we have not seen or heard Christ, but we can rejoice in him because our belief in Jesus finds him precious. Look right across the page, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. For those of you that are born again this morning are precious profess to be born again, is Jesus precious to you? Now, how do you know he is precious? Because of the report from the word of God. Joy, he says, we rejoice in the latter part of verse 8 there. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Joy is the emotion of our attraction to him for who he is and the confidence in him for what he will do. Joy is part of love. If we love Christ, we will rejoice and take joy in him and the results of faith. 
And then finally this morning, through love, belief, rejoicing, we receive the salvation of our souls. These three are integral to salvation. They are the results of being born again. They are the results of being having faith imparted to us by the word of God, confessing our sin, repenting of our sin, calling out to Jesus to save, and he does. Our faith then is refined, so at the last day, and that's what verse 9 says, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. At the last day when Christ returns, it will be the occasion for praise, honor, and glory. I love great music. Gifted people. We have gifted people here that sing, play the instruments. I love music from choirs. I love just listening to male and female voices and how they unite. Can you imagine the shots from heaven when we return with the Lord Jesus Christ, if he tarries, and if he tarries, we'll all go, those of us that know the Lord Jesus will go home to be with him. And perhaps some of you will be alive and remain, as Paul said. That crescendo of praise. God values my faith more than he values my possessions and my comfort. That's why we will receive the salvation of our souls. Next slide. He talks about through love. Peter concludes these verses, 1 through 9. He focuses on verse 3, a living hope. On verse 5, our faith. And in verse 8, an unseen love. Hope, faith, love. He says you're going to receive the end of your faith. You're going to be gifted with the outcome of your faith. And the word in there means a time or a limit to which things cease to be. There's coming a time when the end takes place. And when that time comes, whenever that may be, the salvation of your souls is going to be the results. I went to lunch the other day with some of my former colleagues. And they asked, asked me to, to pray uh, for the lunch, and I did. And there were a number of believers there and unbelievers there. And one of them asked me, Ernie, when you look at the world situation, do you, do you think the end is near? I, I said, the end is always near. It's always near. We don't need to look at the world situation and say, well, all of this has happened and now we need to, your redemption draws nigh. 
The end is always near. Because here's the thing. You and I don't know what tomorrow may bring. And so the end, the limit to which my life may be, my mortal life may be, could be today. And then I'll stand before my loving Heavenly Father. Same thing that apply to you. The end is always near. The return of the Lord, when the Lord determines to come, he actually told his disciples, didn't he, in Acts chapter 1, it's not for you to know the time or the place. So all of this manipulation of looking at everything and saying, and then Jesus says, it's not for you to know. You be busy about what I told you to be busy about, which is carrying the hope of the gospel to a lost and dying world. The end is always near. Your life is a vapor. Appears for a little while and then passes away. Now to be sure, we're saved. Past tense. We're being saved. Present tense. And we shall be saved. Future tense. And all of this takes place ultimately when he returns call his bride to himself. We're gifted with faith. We receive that, the salvation, that faith never perishes. It's protected by the power of God. Our faith has hope, and it should produce an undying love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Our final salvation results because this faith perseveres to the very end. People don't walk an aisle, get saved, and then fall out with a church. Something happened, and they, 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 uh, though was mean to me. That's what Megan used to say when she was a little girl. Though was mean to me, basically talking about Stephanie, I think. Though was mean to me, because they went back and forth several times. We don't get to do that. Love for Christ means you love his people with all their warts. Faith is a permanent gift from God. Paul would write to the church of Philippi. He said, I'm confident of this very thing, that he that has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Has Christ begun a work in you this morning? Do you love him even though you haven't seen him? Now, one day our faith's going to become sight. H.G. Spafford wrote, wrote about this in uh, the great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Lord, haste the day when our faith becomes sight. But it's not that way now. Our faith is through the Word of God. One last quote, and with this we'll close. Next slide, brother. The Puritan Robert Layton. In the 1600s on his commentary on 1 Peter. He wrote a commentary on 1 Peter that was over 500 pages long. There's only 104 verses in 1 Peter. He said this, Believe and you shall love. Believe much and you shall love much. Labor for strong and deep persuasion of the glorious things which are spoken of Christ and this will command love. 
Certainly, did men indeed believe his worth, they would accordingly love him. For the reasonable creature cannot but affect that most which it firmly believes to be the worthiest of affection. Oh, this mischievous unbelief is that which makes the heart cold and dead toward God. Seek then to believe Christ's excellency and his love to us. Our interest in him, and this will kindle such a fire in the heart as it will make it ascend into the sacrifice of love to him. Whom having not seen, you love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that there is a blessing that was pronounced by the Lord Jesus. Blessed are those that believe but have not seen. And so, Father, we always, as Paul said, we look through a glass that is opaque, that is dim. But we have the blessed word. We have the report. That teaches us about who you are. I pray this morning as if there's anyone here that does not know your Savior, that you would call them as they repent of their sins, call out to you. We know you'll save them. We pray for believers this morning, whom having not seen you love. Lord, you know in this life that the sufferings and afflictions, the chastisements are not easy to endure. You know this because you endured the affliction of Calvary. And so gift us with faith from the word of God so we may live to glorify your precious name. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. So the invitation is, is very simple this morning. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, we can't save you. But with an open Bible, we can lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can leave here this morning with that assurance, even though you've not seen him. There's confidence. Paul talks a great deal. Peter talks a great deal about the confidence that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to sing an invitation hymn, give you an opportunity to move out uh, from the pew. And as I said, we'll take you to a private prayer room and there leads you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and the Lord is leading you into the fellowship of this church, you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. You uh, have been baptized. Uh, perhaps you're going to join the statement of faith, a transfer of a letter. We encourage you to come also as we sing this morning. And as a child of God, it's important that we understand that this introduction that Peter is giving to us prepares us as it was preparing Peter. For Peter, Peter was being prepared to die. And so he wrote this way. The end is always near. What number, brother? 281. 281.